This is World Lutheran News Digest, an audio news magazine bringing you a look at significant events in worldwide Lutheranism. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO, a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Today on World Lutheran News Digest... I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. Future generations will remember January of 2017 as one of the most noteworthy dates in American history. A new president was sworn into office after losing the popular vote but winning the Electoral College. The traditional two-party system is changing as one moves to the extreme left and the other away from conservatism to populism. There's been one massive march protesting the new administration already, and another takes place later this week that's protesting abortion on demand. The nation is divided politically and culturally as it hasn't been since the election of 1860. What's happening? Why is it happening? And where do we as a nation go from here are the questions on many minds. Longtime Washington observer Tim Gigline, who's vice president of Focus on the Family, and I talk about these very issues on today's World Lutheran News Digest. And now today's fast track. I'm Sarah Golseth with news in brief of interest to Lutherans worldwide. In one of his first official actions, President Donald Trump reinstated the life-affirming Mexico City policy, ensuring that American taxpayers do not fund international organizations that perform or promote abortion overseas. The news comes just after the 44th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion on demand across the country. The 44th annual March for Life takes place Friday in Washington, D.C., as well as other cities across the nation. In the past, as many as 650,000 people have joined the march. Since its inception, millions have marched in protest against the infamous Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision legalizing abortion on demand. As usual, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod will have a strong presence. Both the House and the Senate are moving legislation forward this week that would end all taxpayer funding for abortion, including those paid for through some insurance plans that are part of the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare. The legislation has a provision to make certain all plans offered through Obamacare exchanges must disclose whether it includes coverage of elective abortion procedures, as well as the abortion surcharge embedded into abortion-covering plans, the press release said. The Virginia House of Delegates voted 57-36 to to adopt a resolution calling January 22nd, the day that the Supreme Court ruled that abortion was a constitutional right, a, quote, day of tears in Virginia, and saying, quote, that the citizens of the Commonwealth of Virginia are encouraged to lower their flags to have staff to mourn the innocents who have lost their lives to abortion. Because the bill is a House resolution, it does not go on to the Virginia Senate or Governor Terry McAuliffe, who has vetoed pro-life legislation in the past. The resolution simply stands as the opinion of the House of Delegates. The 115th United States Congress includes six LCMS congregation members who served in the previous session, five members of the House of Representatives and one senator, all of them Republican. Re-elected in November, LCMS members serving in the House are Dr. Larry Bouchon of Indiana, Glenn Grothman of Wisconsin, Eric Paulson of Minnesota, Dave Reichert of Washington, and John Shimkus of Illinois. In the Senate, Cory Gardner of Colorado was elected to a six-year term in 2014. World Liquor News Digest will be back right after these messages. Hi, 
I'm Pastor Ted Lesh, pastor at Chapel of the Cross Lutheran Church in North St. Louis County, inviting you to listen to our KFUO radio worship broadcasts on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. Active worship, preaching, music, and singing are part of every one of our services at Chapel. Join us Sunday nights at 6. It's one more broadcast worship opportunity for you from your friends at Chapel of the Cross and KFUO Radio. Facebook is one of the biggest social media instruments for checking out what is going on with Worldwide KFUO. On our Facebook page, facebook.com slash KFUO Radio, you'll see us posting pictures, online videos, show information, as well as reviews and previews of events at KFUO. Worldwide KFUO, we are where you are. On Facebook at facebook.com slash KFUO Radio. The worldwide leader of confessional Lutheranism. Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. There's a special place where rare books from times long ago come alive in your imagination. A special place where you can rediscover values that transcend time itself. A special place of adventure, mystery, and drama that's both old and new at the same time. Lamplighter Theater. Saturday mornings at 11 on KFUO Radio. Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, host of Moments of Assurance, Sunday at 9.15 a.m. right here on KFUO Radio. Each week I have the privilege of producing a quarter hour of message, music, and prayer blended together to fit a special theme for that day. You'll hear messages of hope and complete confidence in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You'll hear choirs and instrumentals to support the message as well. So I invite you to join me. That's Moments of Assurance, Sunday morning at 9.15 a.m. This is World Lutheran News Digest. I'm Kip Allen, host of World Lutheran News Digest. My guest today is Mr. Tim Gigline, a longtime Washington observer and vice president of Focus on the Family. Tim, this has been one heck of a roller coaster ride in Washington. What are your observations? Yes, you're absolutely right, Kip. Buckle up, because we are in for a remarkable uh, four years. You know, uh, taking one step back, if I may, just historically, there have been very few, uh, comparatively, uh, presidencies which have been, you know, very oriented uh, toward uh, an almost annihilation of both uh, the existing parties. Uh, and I won't go through, you know, those four or five different uh, presidencies, the most famous of which, of course, was Andrew Jackson. You know, he came into Washington sort of as Halley's Comet. And by the time he was done, uh, eight years later, uh, the existing two-party structures looked nothing like when uh, the Jackson presidency began. And I believe uh, that that is, you know, the kind of atmosphere we are already in uh, with the new president, Donald Trump. He has never been a registered Republican until very recently, uh, spent much of his life supporting uh, Democrats as much as Republicans. Uh, and I have to say, I was at the inaugural of swearing in. I listened to every word. I took good mental notes, and I can say that I have never heard a speech like that. I mean, the denunciation, essentially, of the entire political class, a denunciation of the so-called established 
replacement. And of course, with uh, three, uh, not not even that, four, excuse me, other presidents on the dais with him, uh, you know, really uh, being very exact about uh, the mistakes that have been made in the past and the way he's going to do it uh, differently in the future. So we are off uh, on a on a nationwide roller coaster that I think is unlike uh, anything that we have seen in our lifetime. I have to agree with that, Tim. I've been a political junkie all my life. In fact, I, I actually uh, won, a, won a bet with my aunt in 1952 <laughs> over, uh, over uh, Eisenhower and, uh, and uh, Stevenson. Yes. I, she, I, I won an ice cream cone on that one. So <laughs> ever since then, I've been a political junkie. And I have to say, I have never heard an inaugural speech that was so much, uh, I'm going to call it a red meat speech. I, I mean, he really threw down the gauntlet. Yeah, you know, I, I was very surprised by uh, the pundits, left and right, uh, who seemed so stunned by this speech. Uh, I, uh, I have to say, frankly, I was not stunned. I uh, made, have made a point uh, in the last calendar year to track Donald Trump very closely. Uh, like you, uh, I'm a public policy uh, junkie, and so uh, my idea of a good time, uh, you know, is watching C-SPAN and reading the columns of the Wall Street Journal. And I, <laughs> I uh, have been really smitten, not with Donald Trump. He was not my first choice. But I've been smitten by the language, the idiom, the rhetoric that he uses. And that idiom is very apolitical in one sense. In other words, he doesn't play into the nuances of diplomacy, uh, into the sort of accepted standards of the political class. You know, we have had three presidents born in 1946. Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the oldest president, uh, you know, to come to office uh, the first time. And I think that if you look uh, at the comparisons to Bill Clinton and the left of that baby boom generation presidency. Look at the, the more center-right in George W. Bush, the man for whom I worked for nearly eight years. You know, this man, Donald Trump, really does not play into either one of those ideological bases or stereotypes. He comes from an entirely, uh, you know, different place, and he's not beholden to anyone else. And I think, Kip, if I may say, the real origins of this rhetoric, the real origins of the Donald Trump that we see, begins not really one or two years ago. It really uh, begins in the idiom of the Tea Party, which was a rebellion on the right uh, against not just Barack Obama, but against politics as usual. Uh, there's even a seedbed in the former rhetoric of Pat Buchanan. So I think we have seen a populist, nationalist manifesto, and I think that uh, we're going to see uh, a first hundred days truly unlike anything of our lifetime. And it really uh, you know, has already begun with the president's first foray in opposition to Obamacare and his first executive order, which seeks to take a wrecking ball uh, to uh, and, and a pathway uh, to a complete uh, repeal of that, uh, you know, of, of that really legacy of the Obama administration. Well, there, there were two aspects of the speech that really struck me. One is that when he made reference to protection in terms of trade, and then spoke about infrastructure rebuilding, both of which were not on the Republican Party platform, where he definitely, uh, he definitely no, you're, outlined. You're absolutely right. And, yeah. and in fact, I'm glad you mentioned this, Kip, because this is a bit of a confirmation of what I was saying a moment ago, which is, uh, you know, each side has its base. And so you would naturally expect 
that right out of the blocks, the president, you know, would, would, would sort of, quote, unquote, play to the base. But he's chosen not to do that. Uh, you know, he has already said that his goal is to uh, reorient a federal budget for $1 trillion. That's trillion with a T. Uh, and he was very direct uh, in, his, uh, in his inauguration speech. He wants to rebuild the railroads, rebuild the bridges, the highways. And, you know, he is going to, he says, find a way to do that. You know, his natural uh, base uh, of the Republican Party is, you know, skittish about that amount of federal spending. So I think that that's, you know, just one example of, of you know, of what you're talking about. And I think it was the fact that he's uh, used Rens Priebus now as his chief of staff. Yeah. I think that was a, a very clever move on his part. He's He knows he has to work with the Congress, specifically with the Republican Party, to get his agenda done, even though a lot of it's not part of the uh, GOP. And uh, he talked about draining the swamp, but now he's using a cultimate, a, uh, uh, one of the ultimate insiders as a, as a native guide, so to speak. He, knows, he has to know how to, how to get through that jungle of Congress. You know, there, there is a, a very important conservative leader called Morton Blackwell, uh, who is the founder of the Leadership Institute, which really aims uh, to form and shape and impact young conservatives. And very famously, Morton, who worked for Ronald Reagan, uh, uh, once wrote or said that personnel is policy. And I think he's exactly right. It's certainly true in Washington you have to follow the money. But it's also true that you have to follow the personnel. Staffing matters. And Donald Trump uh, made two very important choices with regard to his relationship with Capitol Hill, uh, which is where we at Focus on the Family have our office. The first thing he did is he said, Mike Pence, this is a man who, of course, was, was a governor, but was you know, primarily coming to politics as a very effective conservative Republican congressman and later the leadership uh, in, uh, in the Congress in opposition uh, to President Obama. And Mike Pence is very highly regarded on both sides of the political aisle and on both sides of Capitol Hill. So I think that uh, we should see uh, the vice president uh, as the first bridgeway into the Congress in behalf of the president. And by the way, Mike Pence has already been given an office uh, in the Capitol. Secondly, as you uh, say, Kip, the choice of Reince Priebus, I know Chairman Priebus, uh, and I know uh, Vice President Pence, I say this with humility, uh, these are very good men. These are men who are very good about shining the spotlight toward Trump and away from themselves, but they realize that they are a bridgeway into Capitol Hill, and you are exactly right. The part that will be most frustrating for Donald Trump is he is used to uh, getting up early in the morning, looking at the landscape of media and business, and then as an executive, uh, pulling gears, flipping switches that, you know, that get deals done. That's how he likes to work. And we're going to see that later this week when he has his first uh, meeting with a, a foreign head of state as president. That would be Prime Minister May of uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, but I think that to your point, and this is exactly right, the new president is bound to be frustrated because Capitol Hill often moves at a glacial pace. And if you know anything about Donald Trump, you know that glacial pace and Trumpism often don't go together. <laughs> One of the other things I wanted to ask is about the Democrats. We had more than 60 Democrats refuse to attend the uh, inauguration. We have mm -hmm. uh, 
We have accusations that his his presidency is, quote, illegitimate, unquote. And the Democrats have really thrown down a gauntlet. Now, what I'm wondering is, are they, have they perhaps overplayed their hand on this? Because they no longer have the majorities in either one, either Congress. I'm wondering if, uh, if we can keep, if the president can keep the Republicans together in the Congress. Does he yeah, really I, need I'm the really Democrats? I'm glad you asked that, and I'd like to answer in two ways. Um, you know, it's a big mistake for Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, after a fully legitimate presidential race, then to say that one or the other uh, new presidential, you know, candidates uh, who's been, you know, fully elected president of the United States is somehow not legitimate. This happened on the right with Barack Obama. It happened, uh, uh, you know, on the left uh, with Donald Trump. I think it was a huge mistake. Uh, Barack Obama was a legitimately elected president. Donald Trump is a legitimately elected president. You know, I say to both sides, left and right, get over it. They won. So that's first. Secondly, and much more importantly, the way that the Senate and the House are organized is very important in the way that I answer your question. The House of Representatives, if you are the majority party, you have 100 percent control. You control the rules that allow a bill to come to the floor. You control uh, the total structure of the committees and subcommittees. Uh, and if you don't want to, you don't have to cede the floor to the other party when it comes to debate. Very unlike the Senate. The Senate is just the opposite. Uh, the Senate says the following, regardless of the party you're in, if you can get the floor of the Senate, you can speak and debate uh, and uh, you know, as long as you want. Secondly, in the Senate, uh, the process is structured in such a way that you can offer in the Senate as many amendments as you want, whether you're the most junior member or whether you're the most senior. That is not true in the House of Representatives. In the House of Representatives, you can only legislate and amend if the majority party uh, allows to accept uh, you know, allows you to, to, to be accepted in that regard. That's how our founding fathers wanted it. You know, more power as the majority to the House, less in the Senate. And this is a thing, uh, back to your question, this is a reality that Donald Trump, in his relationship with Capitol Hill, is going to have to internalize. It will be very frustrating for him, but our founding fathers wanted checks and balances, not too much power in any of the three branches of government. So he's going to have to go ahead with this. And as you pointed out, uh, Vice President Pence, who also serves as president of the Senate, can help him negotiate these rather rocky waters. Yeah, and may I say, there are going to be rocky waters. And this is always a reality for the party that controls, you know, two of the three branches of government, the presidency and the legislative branch. You know, I've lived and worked in Washington a long time. I've lived here long enough where I've seen uh, both parties control all the gears of government. And, you know, it always starts out euphoric that, boy, we control uh, that White House. We control the, the House and Senate. You know, and there's this very false utopian sense that somehow we can now achieve all of our goals. That is absolutely not going to happen, not only because we have the reality of a third branch of government, which is the judiciary. And as we all know, judges uh, have a very uh, remarkable and adept and predictable way of throwing sand into gears, but also because among the par- yeah, within the party structure, there are great differences tactically, strategically, and how to get things done. And I don't want to lose this point, Kip, very quickly because we are going to see another monumental thing probably within two weeks. And I really do mean monumental. We are probably going to see 
uh, a, uh, a, a, a likely nominee in the Supreme Court for the seat of justice of the late Justice Scalia, who died almost a year ago. This will be a earth-shattering event, both for uh, the White House, which will axiomatically become subsumed in this nomination, and for Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, because he does not have currently the 60 votes needed to confirm a Supreme Court justice. Uh, back to our uh, discussion of a moment ago, unless you have 60 votes in the Senate, you can do very little to get things done, including nominations for Supreme Court justices. What about the so-called nuclear option? Well, the nuclear option uh, you know, uh, is absolutely uh, the most powerful potential tool in Mitch McConnell's toolbox. And for those who don't know what uh, we're speaking about, I'll do this very rapidly. Uh, historically, in the Senate, if you are a minority party, you have had the ability to filibuster a bill, you've had the ability to filibuster an amendment, and you've had the ability to filibuster a, uh, a Supreme Court uh, or a other federal judge. Because by the lights of the, of the nuclear option, uh, you know, you, you've had to have 60 votes uh, for a bill, an amendment, or a nominee. What happened under the leadership of the former majority leader, Harry Reid, the Democrat from Nevada who has retired, is that, is that that rule was changed. In other words, the nuclear option was put into place so that amendments, bills, and excluding Supreme Court justices, you know, all you need was 51 votes. The nuclear option was invoked and used for all the above except for Supreme Court nominations. So the question is, if the Democrats in the Senate decide to be intransigent, if they decide that they will not allow a vote to go forward for a Supreme Court justice, the question is whether Mitch McConnell will invoke the nuclear option and only uh, use 51 votes for a Supreme Court nomination. One very important historical footnote. Bill Clinton... George W. Bush, Barack Obama, all three were able to get past their first Supreme Court nominee without uh, having to invoke a nuclear option. And so I think it is possible that Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell will say to the Democrats, at least on the first one, even if you strongly disagree by the lights of protocol, you should allow us to have the first nomination. My, my opinion is that that kind of goodwill is out the window in Washington, and I think we are uh, in for a battle royale. Interesting times we're headed for. <clears throat> Let me move a little bit now onto the street. We saw massive demonstrations against Donald Trump. Uh, we have seen the uh, the march, the Washington, uh, the women's march in Washington that took place. Again, very much opposed to uh, to President Trump. What is the tenor of the street that you are seeing right now? I mean, there there have been. Uh, one of the things that, that struck me was that the uh, some of the rioters who are arrested are now facing felony charges. This had not been done before. I would say three things, Kip. First, the the anti-Trump protests of election uh, of, of inaugural day. We are learning that that was a well-orchestrated, well-oiled, uh, uh, you know, uh, effort to essentially disrupt the inauguration. It failed. Lots of arrests. Six uh, policemen were injured. Uh, it went nowhere, but of course those charges for felony, 
uh, and vandalism will go forward. And it's a very significant development uh, in American presidential history. Secondly, with regard to the anti-Trump march uh, the day after the inauguration, it's absolutely true. Uh, these were very large crowds, up to, you know, uh, a million people in Washington. It, I, I don't think it should surprise us at all. There was a very large number of Americans who were very strongly in opposition to Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump did not win the uh, popular vote, so there's a lot of very uh, angry people. And uh, those angry people came to Washington and, uh, and protested uh, the, you know, the day afterward. My own sense is that when you look at the landscape of, of American uh, political history, we have a history of lots of demonstrations, lots of protests, I'm sorry to say some violence. Uh, this does happen. And I think, frankly, uh, for all of the gigantic numbers of Americans who have been here in Washington in the last uh, four days, I think Homeland Security, the Secret Service, law enforcement from around the country did a you know, really superior job. And, uh, and I think Washington, D.C. Uh, is very safe. May I say, I think at the end of the day that it is probable that Donald Trump will be judged on two big things. Did he keep America safe? And how's the economy doing? I'm not being reductionist because all the issues matter just as much. But at the end of the day, it's not that the rest of it is white noise. But when it comes to elections, as we've just been through, it's about the economy and it's about safety. And those are two of the very high benchmarks uh, for the Trump-Pence administration. As I said, we're in for some intriguing times ahead. Uh, we're running out of time, uh, Tim, and I just wanted to thank you for joining the show, and I was wondering if there's, you have any last-minute thoughts that you want to put on. Well, I'll, I'll add just one thing, and it's the following. Donald Trump is going to attempt something that we have not seen in a very long time. He is going to attempt to defund Planned Parenthood to concretize and make permanent uh, the Hyde Amendment, which says no federal taxpayer dollars for abortion. And, of course, we're going to see the March for Life later this week in Washington. After eight barren years, we're going to see whether the president, the vice president, or senior staff will speak uh, to the thousands of people who will be gathered for that. And I think that uh, the coda of Roe versus Wade and the life issue actually is a very important issue in the Trump era. Thank you very much for being on the show, Tim, and look forward to having you on again in the future. Thanks so much, Kip. Be of good cheer. Thank you much. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 p.m. and again at 9.30 a.m. Saturday Central Time on Worldwide KFUO. It may also be heard anytime streaming online at kfuo.org. Join us again next Wednesday for another new edition of World Lutheran News Digest. I'm your host, Kip Allen. World Lutheran News Digest is a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO. You can also listen to WLN Digest on demand at kfuo.org. To correspond with World Lutheran News Digest, email news at kfuo.org.